everyone, and welcome to Litigation Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scriven Young. I'm a commercial and environmental litigator in the Chicago office of Bakar and Abramson, which is recognized as the largest law firm serving the construction industry, with 115 lawyers and 11 offices around the U.S. On this show, we talk to the country's top litigators and judges to discover best practices in developing our careers, winning cases, getting more clients, and building a sustainable practice. This podcast is brought to you by the litigation section of the American Bar Association. The litigation section provides litigators of all practice areas the resources we need to be successful advocates for our clients. Learn more at ambar.org litigation. The value of pro bono work is well known. Numerous authors have pointed out that pro bono work is not only good for the soul and a great way to help people, but it can also be good for our careers. Yet, despite all those benefits and the public's desperate need for services, almost half of American lawyers do no pro bono work throughout the year. Today's episode will investigate these issues and discover how lawyers can overcome the barriers that can get in the way of taking on more pro bono matters. So I'm pleased to introduce our panel of guests. Annie Garrity Helms is Director and Counsel for U.S. Pro Bono Programs at DLA Piper and is responsible for helping to develop, lead, and manage the firm's pro bono program in the United States. She has developed a number of pro bono initiatives for the firm, including the Chicago office's signature Juvenile Justice Project. She's a leader with the ABA Litigation Section's Children's Rights Litigation Committee, and she received her bachelor's degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and her law degree from Georgetown University Law Center. Annie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Our second guest is Julie Grice. She's an associate in the San Diego office of DLA Piper. She's a litigator and business lawyer who focuses her practice on antitrust law, representing clients in complex litigation, arbitration, and internal and governmental investigations. Prior to joining the firm, she was a research associate at the Public International Law and Policy Group in Washington, D.C., which is a global pro bono law firm specializing in peace negotiations, post-conflict constitutions, and transitional justice. Ms. Grice received two degrees in international relations, a bachelor's degree from Brown University, and a master's degree from American University. She also received her law degree from American University, Washington College of Law. Welcome to the show, Julie. Thanks, Dave. It's an honor to be here. And finally, we have Ira Lusbader. He's litigation director and chief program officer at Children's Rights, a national nonprofit organization that investigates, exposes, and combats violations of the rights of children across the country. Mr. Lusbader directs Children's Rights' national program of campaigns to reform structural failures in child-serving systems, such as child welfare, juvenile justice, and healthcare systems, as well as the development of partnerships and coalitions. With litigation in over 15 states at any given time, Children's Rights actively works in partnership with pro bono law firms in its federal civil rights class action litigation across the country. Prior to joining Children's Rights, he was a litigator at two New York City law firms, and he is also a leader with the ABA litigation section's Children's Rights Litigation Committee. He's also a recent child and family leadership fellow at the Annie E. Casey Foundation. He received his bachelor's degree from the State University of New York at Albany and his law degree from Boston University School of Law. Welcome to the show, Ira. Thanks. Happy to join you. Well, let's start with Annie and just a very simple question that will help to frame our discussion. So is there a need for litigators in particular to do pro bono work? 
Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you took this opportunity to highlight pro bono as part of this podcast, because it's something that everyone in our profession really should be aware of and, and participate in. There is an incredible need for pro bono legal assistance in this country. On any given day, 63 million Americans qualify for free civil legal aid assistance, but only half of those of people who actually seek legal help are able to receive it. And that's not just not because they they don't have a case or there's not some merit to their claim. It's because there simply aren't resources to be able to help them. And that's where pro bono lawyers can help provide resources for unmet legal needs. There are plenty of opportunities for litigators in particular to be involved. No matter where you are, no matter what your practice is, whether you're a solo practitioner or a big firm litigator, there's probably someone in your town who is in need of a protective order because they're a domestic violence victim, or they may need help with a landlord-tenant issue. There may be a prisoner's rights case where you could be of great help to the local federal courthouse by helping out as pro bono counsel. So no matter what, there are plenty of opportunities for you to get involved. Well, and you know, one of the things that I think people talk about generally are the value that uh, associates in particular, young lawyers, can give to clients on a pro bono basis. And I know, Julie, you've done a number of cases with DLA Piper. Can you give us some, an overview of some of those pro bono cases you've worked on? Sure. I'm, I'm happy to, to do that. When I was a more junior lawyer in our D.C. office, I became really heavily involved in landlord-tenant litigation and uh, various housing right-to-counsel projects. What I mean by that is helping to ensure that uh, tenants have access to counsel. Annie mentioned this, but, you know, there's a huge need for litigators. And what we see in, in D.C. in particular is there's a huge discrepancy um, between those folks who are represented by counsel and those who are not. For example, 95% of landlords are represented by counsel in D.C. and, and 90 to 95% of tenants appear pro se. So there was a huge need there, and I, I just thought the work would be really interesting. And so I got involved in a number of landlord-tenant litigation matters, helping either families or individuals living in poverty try and avoid um, losing their home. And obviously the consequences of an eviction can have devastating effects that go well beyond losing one's home. So that was sort of the the beginning of my pro bono practice, I would say, landlord-tenant cases. And then later in my career, I became involved with an organization called the D.C. Affordable Law Firm, which is an organization that was founded by DLA, Errant Fox, and Georgetown University Law Center. And they provide legal services to individuals in need, but who don't qualify for free legal aid. And the majority of the cases that I have been involved with at the D.C. Affordable Law Firm involve family law issues, um, divorce and custody cases. And I've worked on a number of litigation matters with the D.C. Affordable Law Firm, um, including one that was a 12-day bench trial, went all the way up to appeal. So just some really great litigation experience for some very deserving clients. And I currently serve as senior counsel at the D.C. Affordable Law Firm, uh, helping to mentor junior litigators navigate sort of beginning to end litigation strategy on a number of their own active litigation matters dealing with family law issues. And then more recently, when I uh, moved out to sunny San Diego, I wanted to find a way to engage with local communities out here and also help familiarize myself with the California court system, obviously, because it's a bit different than D.C. And I did that through a number of domestic violence restraining order cases here in San Diego. 
And I'll just touch briefly on uh, a case that I'm currently working on as I think we're going to talk about it a little bit further into the podcast, but I'm currently working with um, IRA and children's rights along with a number of other DLA Piper colleagues on impact litigation where we're pursuing claims on behalf of relative foster children uh, and foster families in Ohio with respect to foster care maintenance payments. So some interesting cases and uh, that's kind of at a high level what my practice, my pro bono practice has looked like over the years. Excellent. And Annie, coming back to you, we've seen a lot of large law firms develop and hire for the position of pro bono director or pro bono coordinator. And Julie's already talked about, you know, the vast array of pro bono opportunities that are available. So why is your role with the firm uh, very important? Well, DLA Piper has made a huge investment in our pro bono team. I'm actually one of five full-time lawyers at the firm who practices exclusively in pro bono in the United States, and we have an international team as well. But we have 25 domestic offices at DLA Piper, and lawyers in each of those offices are expected to participate in our pro bono program. We have an expectation that each of our lawyers contribute at least 60 hours to pro bono projects that they feel passionate about. And it's my job, and I love this job, by the way, to find them those kinds of opportunities that are going to help fulfill their obligation, but also help with professional development, matters that they find personally enriching, that they really care about. And it's also my job to act as a liaison with with community organizations like IRA's organizations so that I have a good resource to go to when we have lawyers who want to engage in a particular area or when they want to engage in a particular area and they may not have the expertise necessary to just jump in without resources and support. So really that's my job is to make sure that we're we're doing pro bono, that we're all engaged in pro bono, and that we're doing it thoughtfully and alongside the community. Well, Ira, let's bring you into the conversation because uh, obviously Children's Rights is one of those organizations that partners with DLA Piper. So for those of us who are unfamiliar with your organization, can you tell us a little bit more about Children's Rights, its mission, um, and how particularly litigation advances its mission? Sure, and thanks for the opportunity to discuss our work. Uh, really appreciated. Children's Rights is a national nonprofit children's advocacy organization. We're based in New York City. The core of our mission is holding government child serving systems accountable to the children they're supposed to serve. So think of child welfare and foster care systems or juvenile justice systems or healthcare or immigration systems. We do that through policy and advocacy work and through a core program of federal civil rights impact litigation. The, the litigation work is challenging, to be sure. It's complex and resource intensive and involves grassroots investigating and where necessary filing federal civil rights impact litigation, typically class actions on behalf of kids caught up in systems that are broken and not accountable to them. So for example, that could be because a juvenile detention center is depriving youth of basic mental health care and instead using brutal forms of restraint and solitary confinement or because a system is unnecessarily segregating disabled kids in institutions instead of providing community-based housing and supportive services, or because a foster care system isn't adequately supporting extended families and kin. Now, these are just some examples, and the claims through all these cases generally involve uh, complex federal constitutional and statutory rights of kids impacted by them. So with our co-counsel partners, Children's Rights is deeply involved in these kinds of cases in over 15 states at any given time. 
And can you talk about the relationship uh, between children's rights and law firms like DLA Piper and how they help you to do the work that you need to do? Sure, absolutely. We engage with firms like DLA Piper because pro bono law firms are hugely valuable partners with talented attorneys that really help advance these cases on behalf of the children we all represent. So first off, firms like DLA Piper, they have the ability to assemble, often from different offices from around the country, teams of super highly talented lawyers at multiple levels who can share in the legal strategy, the research, the drafting, active litigation and discovery, trials, appeals, remedy negotiations, and post-judgment enforcement. Uh, the lawyers at firms like DLA are just invaluable to the team, often with other nonprofit legal co-counsel on these same teams. We're also really grateful that firms like DLA are able to help support the litigation expenses of these cases, whether it's document management or experts, depositions and the like. The lawyers at my staff at Children's Rights and other of our nonprofit partners, we bring a focused expertise on certain kinds of injunctive relief and impact litigation and the kind of child serving systems that we're talking about here. This is deeply complemented by the diverse legal backgrounds of the attorneys at the pro bono firms like DLA that we partner with. So the result is a truly muscular and powerful litigation team for an urgent cause here making systems accountable to the kids they serve. Well, let's talk about one of those cases in particular. I know that Annie and Julie have worked on a particular case with you, Ira. So I was wondering if you could just sort of run through, give us an example of one of those cases that you've worked on with them. Yeah, sure. And actually, we're fortunate to have DLA as our co-counsel in two cases right now, one in Kansas federal court and one in Ohio federal court. But I'll, I'll offer a little extra detail on the Ohio case. That case involves the foster care system in Ohio that is failing to provide equal support payments, and those are called foster care maintenance payments, for the care of kids whose kin or relatives have stepped up to house and support them. So these approved, what they're called relative foster parents, are only getting a fraction of the support payments that are required by law that are provided to licensed non-relative foster parents. There's a real inequity there. And the case alleges through a civil rights class action that this structure violates federal law and is harming the kids and families in these relative foster placements. Just as a quick context, in terms of foster care, it should be extremely rare that kids get removed from their families in the first place, and they should be supported with their families uh, whenever possible. And if they must be removed, the whole federal state foster care system structure demands and supports prioritizing kin, kinship families, who often step up with little notice and who themselves may be struggling financially, uh, and they need at least the same supports as any other foster parents to care for kids. Plus, because of a history in the U.S. in child welfare of structural racism, we know that children in foster care are disproportionately of color and particularly impacting black kids and families. And we also know that the failure to provide equal kinship home supports falls disproportionately on black kids and families as well. So there's an important racial equity issue there, too. So overall, in the Ohio case, we're seeking to force Ohio officials to provide equal supports for all foster families, particularly the kin who step up and care for these kids. And Julie, I know that you've taken sort of a, a, a lead role in, in some of this litigation. Can you tell us more about that, and especially about the skills that you may have gained during the litigation? This case has just provided tremendous opportunities for, for me as a, a litigator 
first and foremost, it, it's provided an opportunity to really take a, a deep dive into a new substantive area of the law, one that is certainly outside of my core practice area, but but one that I'm interested in. And so just on, you know, from that perspective, it's it's opened a lot of uh, doors for me. But um, sort of in terms of harder litigation skills, um, you know, I've worked very closely with, with Ira and his team, uh, as well as um, other DLA colleagues in terms of drafting a preliminary injunction motion in the Southern District of Ohio, and then later arguing uh, that motion before Judge Barrett in the Southern District. So that was just an opportunity that, you know, I don't generally have in some of the normal cases in my core practice area. And then with the current procedural posture of the case, um, taking a, a leading role in some of the appellate drafting before the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. So just some really tremendous um, litigation experience. And then, you know, I'll also add that as a defense litigator, it, it's it's very rare. I would say that I've had the opportunity to think strategically with um, co-counsel and, and partners on what types of claims to bring and, and sort of thinking about litigation strategy from a plaintiff's perspective. And so that's just added a, a whole new flavor to litigating for me, which has been tremendous. Sure. And, and Annie, bringing you back in, can you discuss a little bit about the coordination between children's rights and the lawyers at DLA? I'm, I'm particularly interested in, first of all, how the case came to DLA's attention and then sort of how you provided support going forward to the lawyers sort of on both sides. Sure. Well, I mentioned that part of my role as pro bono counsel is to make connections within the community and to really understand some of the legal issues facing the public that we might be helpful on. And one of the ways in which I've done that is by engaging with the American Bar Association's Civil Rights, I'm sorry, Children's Rights Litigation Committee, which Ira is a member of as well. It's a group that is a cross-section of children's rights lawyers. So anybody who represents children in litigation proceedings, and that includes in the immigration context, in the child welfare context, obviously Ira just described that he works on impact cases and in juvenile justice as well. So this group of wonderful people gets together periodically to talk about what we can do to support lawyers who are involved in children's rights work and also to develop projects where we see inequities or, you know, an area of, of need. And so Ira, basically this case came to us because Ira called and asked if DLA Piper would be interested in working on it. And what I think is really great, I mean, he talked about the value that our lawyers can add to a case like that, but it's really a symbiotic relationship because we have a very deep bench, obviously, of civil litigation lawyers who have that expertise, but most of our lawyers are not children's rights experts and aren't as deeply familiar with child welfare systems in various states. And so working together, we can combine our litigation expertise with his deep knowledge of those issues and also his ability to connect with local communities and identify issues like the one that he described in Ohio so that we can, you know, do do this great work together as a team. Well, I think all of you have made a pretty compelling case as to why pro bono work is important both to the society at large, but also to the career development of individual lawyers. But again, there are many lawyers who believe they face obstacles to working on these cases. So I, I wanted to dive into those obstacles with all of you. So I guess the first obstacle is the issue of competence. Um, and Annie, as you mentioned, and I think Julie mentioned this as well, you know, as commercial litigators may not have 
a lot of experience or expertise to work on a criminal case or um, a case involving the ju- juvenile justice system or the foster care system, for example. So Annie, as kind of your role at DLA Piper, how do, how do lawyers gain confidence to competently take cases outside of their normal practice area? I tell our lawyers all the time that I would never ask them to work on a case where they truly were not competent to handle it. So part of what I can do is to make connections with the legal services community to offer training, resources, a backstop, a person who they can call at an organization when they have questions to make sure that the work that they're doing is being handled for the client in the right way. I I do think that lawyers absolutely should be cautious about that issue. Obviously, you don't want people practicing way outside of the scope of what they know without a safety net. But at the same time, I, I do remind people as well that the need is so great out there. Usually the difference is that if they don't step in and offer pro bono counsel, the person's probably going to be pro se, most likely, and trying to go it on their own. And as lawyers, we all have the basic building blocks and the basic skills to be able to, and and as litigators in particular, to navigate court systems and, and help with some of the processes that our clients are facing. So I really encourage people to take a deep breath and be brave and provide these amazing skills that we all have as lawyers to help people who would have to go it alone otherwise. And Ira, I know that your organization provides some meaningful training and expertise to pro bono law firms. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, although it's it's very much on the job or on the case team, as it were, right? Because, you know, in a prior life, I did complex private antitrust, securities fraud, and uh, consumer fraud litigation in federal court. And these cases are every bit as challenging and complex and intensive except that they focus on changing the, these systems for kids. And, and I'll tell you that strong research writing, oral advocacy, strategic thinking, folks that have done complex fiscal matters and understanding those aspects of different systems, like here, child welfare systems, or folks that have worked on maybe defending class actions instead of prosecuting them. There are so many ways that strong lawyers actually bring huge value without them even sort of maybe realizing it, even as they're learning the substantive area, that the the combination of teams like this is really extraordinary. And uh, in our work over the last 20 years across the country really contributes to, to just an amazing win record and an ability to really impact reform on these systems. Interesting. And, and Julie, I, it occurs to me that you're not, you not only learned a new substantive area of the law, but as a younger lawyer, you're actually learning how to do different things within sort of a procedural context. You know, maybe you drafted a complaint or you talked about a preliminary injunction motion. Maybe it's something you didn't do before. Can you talk a little bit about how you were able to sort of learn those new skills on the job? But I'm sure you also had mentors or supervising attorneys helping you along the way. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I think the the support system and, and the, the manner in which cases are staffed is is, is really key to allowing uh, more junior lawyers like myself help develop those skills. So for example, I, you know, I mentioned the preliminary injunction motion. We have obviously Ira and his team supporting, but also, you know, a partner from DLA Piper who has experience doing preliminary injunction motions, associates at different levels, 
another associate, for example, has more appellate experience. So I think really having a, a well-rounded and, and robust team where everybody sort of contributes to the learning experience of everyone has really allowed for all of us to, to gain just really great litigation experience and, and myself in particular on those issues that I mentioned. Well, let's talk about another obstacle that could get in the way of pro bono, which is a lack of time. Law firms generally expect their lawyers to bill a lot of hours and they compensate and promote based on those hours. So Julie, how do you manage a busy billable practice as well as your pro bono practice? You know, it's it's, it's a great question. And I, I think it's something that I continue to work on and, and try and improve. But I'll say what I have found to be very useful and a successful sort of tactic in terms of balancing caseload is just to really keep an open line of communication with with your teams, whether it's a billable matter or a pro bono matter. It doesn't matter. It's, you know, your clients are your clients and your obligations are your obligations. So just getting out in front of things and, and keeping an open line of communication with the people that you're working with really helps so that people know what you're doing, what you have coming up, and you can, you know, sort of allocate time appropriately. You know, I think it's also important to, to tell people what it is that you're working on. I think by doing that, you can highlight the value of, of the pro bono cases you're working on, and, and that benefits the, the billable cases. So having those conversations are really important as well. You know, I can honestly say I've, I've been very lucky with, with everyone that I've worked with at the firm. Everyone has been tremendously supportive of pro bono. And, you know, even in situations where I've had an extremely busy billable caseload and a busy pro bono caseload, just again, that open line of communication making sure you're getting the support that you need and staffing appropriately. It's, it's just been sort of the best way that I've found to, to manage both sort of obligations. Annie, it sounded like, and it sounds like from what Julie is saying, that DLA Piper is extremely supportive of pro bono efforts. Um, I'm sure that the lawyers that, who are involved in pro bono cases sort of feel that support. There may be law firms that don't offer that the same sort of level of support. So I, I guess from sort of a, a supervisory perspective at a law firm, how do you think lawyers should go about uh, figuring out how to manage that balance if they're interested in a pro bono, taking on a pro bono case, but yet they don't necessarily feel that support at their firm or they don't know, you know how their firm feels about taking on a pro bono case? How, how would you uh, think ha have a lawyer think about how to go about taking on one of those cases? I think the first thing that I might do if I were in that position is to get a sense of what the time commitment is involved in a particular case. For lawyers, litigators, or non-litigators, there are pro bono opportunities that come in every shape and size imaginable. So if it's important to you to give back, do a little bit of homework and find out what opportunities there may be in your community that may just take a few hours of your time. And I would be surprised if I heard about a firm that wasn't supportive of that kind of, of work. I think Julie's point about being proactive and open in terms of communication about what's on your plate is always a beneficial thing to do. And I think most people understand that there is a professional obligation within the profession to engage in pro bono and are supportive about it. And I think at least with larger law firms, you see it pretty much across the board 
that firms have official pro bono policies in place, which associates can access and read. They can go talk to mentors within the firm. If the firm has a pro bono counsel like me, they can go to that person. I often have people come to me and say, I'm, I'm worried because I took something on and it's become bigger than I thought it would be, or my billable practice has gotten bigger than I thought it would be. And that's what I'm here for. I can help develop a deeper bench on a case, for example, or pull in additional support from a different office if someone is getting overwhelmed so that not all of the work falls onto one person. So I think there are a lot of different ways that that people can approach it. But you can start by just looking at the range of opportunities that are available and thinking through what you can realistically take on given your other commitments. Well, another obstacle that I think lawyers face, and you hear this all the time, is malpractice coverage for pro bono. It's a big concern for folks for obvious reasons. Annie, how do you believe lawyers should deal with that concern? The pro bono community has really done an excellent job of addressing that concern. It's something that I hear sometimes uh, from in-house counsel who want to participate in pro bono programs. And really, these days, most legal aid organizations, not everyone, carry some kind of coverage for their pro bono volunteers. So I would just encourage them to ask and be proactive in doing so uh, before they take on a case to make sure that they are covered by the organization's malpractice policy. Great. And and I think you mentioned earlier, you know, that lawyers at midsize and uh, small or, and solo firms have different concerns because they don't typically have access to pro bono coordinators to help them access uh, these kind of opportunities. Annie, do you have any suggestions uh, for these attorneys? There are many, many ways to be involved in any location and no matter what size organization that you're at. The Legal Services Corporation funds legal aid organizations in every state and territory in the United States. I guarantee that if you're in one of those states and territory, there is one where you live. And the Legal Services Corporation has also told these organizations that engaging pro bono lawyers is a priority. So there may be opportunities through legal aid of whatever state you're in to engage Bar associations also have wonderful pro bono programs, whether on a state level or through the ABA. Um, ABA has developed programs like Free Legal Answers that people can participate in. And at the state level, state access to justice commissions and bar associations have put together websites that people can go to and volunteer. So many, many opportunities that are not developed through full-time law firm pro bono coordinators. I would say that Ira and I, as I mentioned, serve on the Children's Rights Litigation Committee, and certainly if people are interested in engaging in particular on behalf of children, they can go to the ABA's Children's Rights Litigation Committee website and learn more about how they can be involved with that program in particular. Obviously, Ira and I have a a soft spot in our heart for that particular group and are always happy to um, see how we can get people involved. Great. And Ira, I think your organization also partners with uh, smaller firms as well, small, medium-sized firms. Can you talk about the relationship and the partner relationship that you uh, have developed with those firms and what lawyers at smaller firms can do uh, to help your organization? Sure. Uh, and yes, we, we often work with larger firms and also smaller firms in the same single case, along with other NGOs. They all bring huge value to the kinds of impact cases we bring. 
Uh, and we learn about these lawyers through our grassroots networking, both nationally and locally. So my suggestion for uh, smaller and mid-sized firms and solo practitioners is to volunteer in your community for kids' causes or join the board of a local organization that advocates for poor kids and families. That's critical work in and of itself. And as Annie was saying, the need is extraordinary. It also plugs you into the larger advocacy community. And those local groups always inform our type of grassroots impact litigations and the connections to local lawyers and our teams they often arise organically through those networks. So it all kind of feeds the larger pro bono purpose, uh, as well as the the individual local volunteer work that's so needed. One of the things that I, I like to think about is, you know, we, we've been talking a lot about children's rights uh, for obvious reasons, but there are obviously so many other there's so much other impact that that lawyers can have. And it seems to me the best way to do about do it is to think about, you know, what are the issues that are important to you? What are the group of folks that you're most interested in serving and then contacting those agencies that work on those issues, work with those populations and find out what they need? Because I'm sure, Ira, you appreciate when people reach out and and, and volunteer or uh, seek information about volunteering. Absolutely. And and we do that all the time. Um, it's it's a constant work of, of networking and really trying to build. It's, you know, you're building a community of advocates at all levels and they, they inform the cases we bring. They do individual work and local work on the ground. And they're, they're really part of a larger community that's lifting up the, these populations that aren't getting access to attorneys and especially, you know, high caliber, really strong, talented attorneys. Well, excellent. And and I think we've reached sort of the end of the time for our show. And I want to thank all of you for being on. Um, Wanted to give everyone the opportunity to give us any sort of last thoughts you might have. And as we close out, I wanted to remind our listeners about the pro bono opportunities that the ABA litigation section provides its members. And of course, that includes the section's Children's Rights Litigation Committee, which Ira and Annie talked about. That committee really strives to improve the quality of the legal representation of children and provide members with opportunities to lead in the development of children's legal policy initiatives, as well as various training opportunities. So Annie, as as one of the leaders of that committee. Can you tell us more about the Children's Rights Litigation Committee and the opportunities that it provides to litigation section members? Well, I encourage anyone who's interested in the work of the Children's Rights Litigation Committee to reach out. At any given time, as I mentioned, we are a cross-section of children's rights lawyers. So lawyers from who represent children in a variety of contexts. And so at any given point, we are working on initiatives that are maybe related to immigration and detention of children juvenile justice, expungement of juvenile criminal records. Right now we're doing some state-by-state research related to strip search of children in educational settings and in other kinds of settings. We always have projects going on. We always need additional help, and we really welcome any involvement from the community and and from the section as well. That's great. And Ira, do you have any other thoughts on the committee or uh, any other final thoughts for our audience? No, I think uh, Annie really nailed it with her description of uh, the Children's Rights Litigation Committee. So really appreciate the opportunity to, to talk about these urgent issues. Wonderful. And Julie, any, any final thoughts for our audience? I think people will uh, really appreciate uh, you know your perspective as, as a younger lawyer striving to provide uh, that, those pro bono services. 
Thanks, Dave. I'll, I'll just conclude by, by saying, you know, I would encourage lawyers at, at all levels, but particularly uh, junior lawyers to, to, to go out and, and take advantage of, of these pro bono litigation opportunities. It's just a great way to build your practice, build your skills, and, and really sort of re-energize your, your passion for the law and, and drive to be a, a better litigator. So we encourage everyone to, to go out there and, and take on these cases and, and, and help those who are in need. Well, I think what we've heard throughout the show is that networking is really important. And, and this is something that, you know, if you join the ABA litigation section, that's certainly something that um, you'll be able to to find a network uh, with your crew, if you will, find the people that are interested in the issues that you're interested in, especially if you're interested um, in the area of children's rights. So for everyone to learn more about the Children's Rights Litigation Committee within the ABA litigation section, you can go to ambar.org slash litigation. You can click on the committees tab where you can find more information all about the litigation sections committee including the Children's Rights Litigation Committee. So thank you very much, uh, Ira, Julie, and Annie, uh, for being on the show today. Thank you. Thanks Thanks so much for having me. Now it's time for our quick tip from the ABA litigation section. I'm so pleased to welcome back Latasha Ellis on the show. Latasha is a litigator in the Washington, D.C. office of Hunt and Andrews Kurth, focusing on insurance coverage cases. Welcome to the show, Latasha. Hi, Dave. How are you? Doing great. So I understand you're going to talk to us about jurisdictional issues today. So what's your quick tip? Yes, I wanted to discuss uh, some tips which may actually be a bit of a refresher for many just about federal diversity of jurisdiction over limited liability corporations. This is a topic that um, came to mind because I actually was filing a complaint uh, recently in federal district court on behalf of an LLC. And I was reminded of the nuanced member-by-member analysis that is required to sufficiently plead um, diversity for limited liability corporations. So, you know, limited liability corporations or LLCs have really quickly become the dominant legal entity of today for a number of reasons. Um, And obviously, like any business entity, LLCs frequently find themselves involved in litigation. And when a dispute reaches a boiling point or that point of no return in some respects, many businesses prefer to litigate in federal court because of, among other advantages, just the the rigid deadlines. And here in the um, District of Columbia, we like to leverage the rocket docket at the Eastern District of Virginia, and small LLCs can actually have their day in court pretty quickly. However, LLCs sometimes struggle to qualify for access to the federal judicial system because of diversity jurisdiction, which, um, as you know, requires the citizenship of the plaintiff and the defendant to be completely diverse. So for an LLC to qualify for diversity jurisdiction, federal courts, as I said, they require um, what is somewhat of a nuanced member-by-member analysis. So for a single member or a mom-and-pop LLC, determining citizenship can be pretty simple. However, for a larger LLC, um, it could pose some complex and time-consuming difficulties. Larger LLCs tend to have dozens of members, including corporations, individuals, partnerships, and in some cases, even other LLCs. 
And so for the purposes of subject matter jurisdiction pursuant to the U.S. Code, which is this is commonly, again, called diversity jurisdiction in a civil action, an unincorporated business organization is deemed to be the citizen of all the states, of all of their members or partners, not simply the states in which they are formed or have their principal places of business. And this is different from corporations where a corporation is a dual citizenship of a dual citizen, excuse me, of both its state of incorporation as well as its principal place of business. Where here, the states in which an uncorporated business organization and LLC are formed and their principal places of business are completely irrelevant to the court's analysis of diversity jurisdiction. So in such a situation, the citizenship of all entities must be determined, including any sub-entities, again, that may have partners or members of their own. And then those, in turn, sometimes tend to have additional partners and members. So it could be a pretty multi-step process. But the exercise, of course, could theoretically be endless. But obviously, for today's purpose, we're going to say that it, it actually is endless. So the two steps that I think is, are important to remember member with this nuanced member by member analysis is that the court expects, you know, when you file a complaint that you determine the citizenship of that unincorporated business organization. And so that essentially means that the name and the citizenship of each member, and again, this includes managing members, majority members, minority members, or partners, managing partners, general partners, or limited partners, each of those members must be specifically pleaded in the complaint. And when a member or a partner thereof is itself an unincorporated business organization, then the citizenship of that member and that partner must also be traced and analyzed accordingly. So again, this could be a bit of a nuanced member-by-member analysis, um, but it is necessary in order to demonstrate to the court that you are properly before it. Of course, if you're on the other end of the filing of a complaint and you're the defendant, this could be a way out of litigation if the plaintiff has not properly pled the citizenship of the LLC. So before we wrap up, I thought it may be great just to have a, a brief example. Um, again, this could get very unwieldy, but for the purposes of our tip segment, we'll keep it simple. So let's say that we have Alpha LLC, and Alpha LLC is formed under the laws of Oregon with its principal place of business in Boise, Idaho. All of the members of Alpha LLC, again, they have to be identified because Alpha LLC is an unincorporated business organization. And as we discussed, it's organ formation and its location of principal business in Idaho are essentially irrelevant for the discussion related to complete diversity of citizenship. So we'll look at Alpha LLC's members And let's say that Alpha LLC has two members, Joe Smith, who is domiciled in Newark, New Jersey. So the analysis for Joe Smith is done. He's a citizen of New Jersey. And so Alpha LLC is also a citizen of New Jersey. But let's say that the second member of Alpha LLC is Beta LP, Limited Partnership. 
well, we'd have to do this analysis for Beta LP to understand who Beta LP's partners are. Maybe Beta LP has two partners. And then we'd need to look at where those partners are citizens of. And we would need to disclose that to the court as well. And that would help determine Alpha LLC's citizenship. So again, very nuanced measure, member by member analysis, but it is extremely important to make sure that your case is properly before the court. Or as I mentioned, if you're on the other side, to make sure that you were actually sued in the proper venue. Just to conclude, you know, organizing a company as an LLC, it certainly provides many advantages and just Today, LLCs continue to represent what I would consider the lion's share of business entities that are incorporated. And just like any other business, they may find themselves in federal court. And if your client does find itself in federal court and it's an LLC, just make sure to keep these things in mind when you consider whether you're bringing the action in the proper court or whether the action brought against you has actually been brought in the proper court and there is complete diversity of citizenship. Well, thanks, Latasha, for the great tips and the reminder of the importance of correctly pleading jurisdiction in our complaints, especially for LLCs. Thanks so much for having me, Dave. And that's all we have for our episode today. I want to thank Michelle Obert, who's on staff with the litigation section, for her help with guest preparation and booking. Our show is produced fabulously by Rich Rivera. Thanks, Rich, for all of your hard work. Thanks also goes out to the co-chairs of the litigation section's audio content committee, Josh Jones and Tyler True. Thank you to Lawrence Coletti and the audio professionals from Legal Talk Network. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time.